the Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter 18, Return Home. Chief Berg guided the handcuffed gang member into the back seat of his cruiser and closed the door. Well now, what are we going to do with all this mess, eh? Not like we can call for an ambulance or the examiner's office. I say we hang their bodies from the trees along the road here, said Charles with a grim enthusiasm, and maybe burn their car alongside the road, too. It'll be a big warning to those other thugs who come along. Martin winced. Vlad the Impaler technique. It might be intimidating with thousands of dead Turks on stakes, but three dead hoodlums? It would probably be more of an instigation. Uh, what would you do? Martin asked Charles. If on the way to Manchester you saw three dead people from Cheshire hanging from the trees. Charles' face set into a dark glare. I'd hunt down those scumbags. First thing I'd do is... His glare faded. His eyes darted around as if he ran out the ramifications. Uh, what if we just made them all disappear? Martin asked. What, like throw the bodies in a pit and pretend they were never here? Asked Tyler. Well, kind of, said Martin. Oh, sure, maybe we take something for ID on the dead guys, just for record-keeping, but yeah, dump them in the pit. No eulogies for these guys. But then, what if we clean all this up, like they were never here? No bodies, no shot-up car to find, no shell casings, no proof. That way, if any of their buddies come looking for them, there's no clue of what happened to them. But the rest of their gang will know where they were going protested Charles. Well, sure, said Martin, but they won't know if they actually got here. Maybe they never got to Cheshire. Maybe they took some loot and split with it. Maybe they attacked a different town. The guys who come looking for them won't have any idea. You mean like Amelia Earhart, said Berg, that the Japanese shot her down and tortured her like a spy in that Saipan prison? Martin stared for a moment at the high fly ball to left field. Uh, yeah. He caught it and threw it home. Imagine the outrage if people did find her crashed plane all shot up. Boy, howdy, there'd be hell to pay, said Berg with a nod. Well, right. But no one found anything. So there was no one to be angry with. Well then, said Berg, we've got a lot to do. These clowns won't be missed for a few hours at least. Better get to work. I'll take the prisoner to the holding cell. Let's get these bodies loaded into the back of your truck. Bring them up to town hall. I'll look for ID and photograph them. Then we can take them up to the trench. What about the car? asked Nick. Should we try to push it behind one of these houses? No, Berg stroked his chin. It needs to disappear too. Got a toe strap or some chains, Martin? Uh, got a toe strap, Martin said. But we'll have to change out that front tire if I'm going to tow it. I'll get on that, Nick bounced off eagerly. He found the keys still in the ignition and popped open the trunk. Hey, there's a bunch of food and stuff back here. Berg peered in the trunk. Looted from the houses. Help me get this into the cruiser. I'll try to get it back to the people they stole it from. The other three men lifted each of the dead men from the pavement and carried them to Martin's truck. Their bodies seemed heavy and extra limp, 
as if they had no bones. Their skin was getting cool and clammy. More than once, Martin could feel his grip slipping and had to clutch the body close in order to get it hefted onto the tailgate. Martin tried not to think of the bodies as dead people, one of whom he was certain that he had killed. He wanted to think of the bodies as ultra-realistic mannequins for paramedic training. Yet his mind couldn't lock down that notion. The tall dead hoodlum, his mother was probably happy to see her young man growing tall and strong. He probably loved his mother and remembered fondly when she comforted him over a skinned knee. When did the heart of that boy turn dark? Was he young when the gang ethos replaced his mother's love? The stocky hoodlum was a challenging load to carry. He had multiple wounds and apparently bled out. His body was particularly slippery. He could have been a football player, if he had been in high school. Was there a father, a brother, a coach, all hoping the stocky young man would put his energy into the game instead of the streets? Martin had to shake off such thoughts. It was mentally draining. This is what they had on them, Tyler said. He laid onto the tailgate the weapons found in the car, the road, and on the bodies. A Caltech, P-32, Smith & Wesson 40, two mags, high point nine, two mags, and a Bursa 380, one extra mag. They were all empty except the Caltech. I found some ammo boxes, half empty. I'll take the 40, said Charles. He wiped the blood off the magazines before pushing them into his pocket. "'Guess I'll take the high point,' Martin said. "'Might as well have some magazines and parts for the other one I have.' "'Could I have the Bursa?' Nick asked. "'That could be good for my son.' Tyler nodded. "'No takers for the Keltec?' Tyler asked. "'I don't do thirty-twos,' Charles said. Nick hesitated. "'You take it, Martin,' Tyler said. We're using your truck and your gas. You ought to get something for that. Martin shrugged, but was inwardly pleased. His household needed more guns to arm the patrols. Chief Berg drove up the hill with the prisoner and the recovered loot. The others set about changing the front tire on the Lancer. A tuner looks absurd with a donut spare. The engine would turn over, but wouldn't start. Shots directed at the driver had damaged the wiring. Martin pulled his truck around and hooked up the tow strap. Charles agreed to sit in the Lancer to steer and brake. Tyler agreed to ride on the tailgate, next to the three cold bodies. Martin pulled slowly, getting the Lancer lined up for the trip back to town, then stopped. The site needed to be cleaned, too. Charles grudgingly agreed to pick up all of the broken taillight bits. Martin and Tyler rolled the rocks back up under their stone walls. Nick replaced the fence rails. Some brushing with tree branches almost erased the torn-up shoulder where the lancer had skidded. Some dirt layered over the blood, then swept around with a tree branch, turned the dark stains into innocuous dusty patches. Shell casings were scouted for and pocketed. It was tedious work, but finally the four men stood for a moment to admire their success. There, said Tyler. Now you'd never know. Good. Let's get these obvious clues. Martin pointed to the truck bed of bodies. Uh, up to town. As they rolled up to town, Jean Murdot stepped into the road to flag them down. Hey there. Heard you all were coming to town. Everybody okay? He glanced from one man to the next. 
Each man nodded with a varying degree of weariness. Great, glad to hear it, said Jean. Berg walked over to Martin's truck. I've got a place to stash that gangland car, but you'll have to pull around back of the old fire station. Think I could steal him for a couple of minutes, Chief? asked Jean. I'm trying to finish up a little after-action debrief with the rest of Stockman Company. We're over by the mailboxes. Berg acquiesced with a nod. Thanks, Chief. Only a couple of minutes, said Jean. The four men joined Lyle, Lance, and the other two men in a semicircle around Jean. Okay, gotta make this quick. Told Chief only a couple of minutes. I'm glad to report that of the nine men who responded to the call, all nine returned. No casualties. Only minor wounds on two of us. We did good today. Lyle's group backed up North Pond at the rear door move, taking out at least two of the bandits in the kitchen. Charles' group stopped the four that fled. Three of them killed, one captured. How did the other companies do? asked Nick. They did good, too, said Jean. Bell Hill and Wilson Hill stormed the front door. One of Wilson's men was hit pretty bad in the chest, but seemed stabilized. Another took a hit in the thigh. Some cuts and scrapes, but no man lost. Where did they find my aunt and uncle? asked Charles. Ah, well, uh, they found him in the cellar. Looked like they were hiding down there. I don't know if it's any help or not, but uh, it looks like they died fast. They didn't suffer. Charles looked away. Bell Hill found the last of them hiding in an upstairs bedroom. He tried to shoot the Wilson Hill man and ran downstairs. That's when a Bell Hill man took him out. Time, Jean, called Berg. Jean waved. You boys head on home and get some sleep. Come meet me at my house tomorrow around noon. Diana will work up something to eat. We can pick things up then. Chief Berg had Martin loop around to pull up in front of the old fire station, abandoned years ago when modern fire trucks became too large for old garages. The men pushed the battered lancer into the smaller bay. They dropped an old canvas tarp over the lancer and rolled down the door. Handily, the windows were almost too dusty to see through. Berg climbed up into the pickup bed. He turned each body over to lie face up. He photographed them and searched their pockets. Only one of the dead men had any ID. Jacob Winslow, 17 Pine Street, Manchester. The other two had small amounts of cash, keys, or tokens. Maybe our prisoner can tell us who they were, said Berg. He's not talking at all, yet. A little cooling off time in that cell might help his mood. What do we do with these guys now? asked Nick. Take them up to the cemetery and dump them in, I guess. Not much else we can do with them. You boys look wiped. I'll find a couple other fellows to send up to the cemetery to do the filling in. How's that sound? All four nodded wearily. Nick and Tyler rode on the bedsides. Charles got in with Martin. Part of me still wants to kill that guy, Charles said, almost to himself. I know, said Martin. And I don't know if I'm mad at you or mad at myself. Yeah, I know that feeling too well, Martin nodded. I've been in that dark place before, Charles said. For a minute back there, I was all too willing to go back into it. Martin had no idea what to say. So I guess I'm saying uh, thanks, Charles looked out of the side window. Sometimes it's easier for guys to say things when there isn't any eye contact. 
Thanks for talking me out of it. Any time, said Martin. Martin turned onto the narrow cemetery road. He pulled up as close to the trench as he felt prudent. They hefted the stocky one in first. They tossed the other two on top of the first one. He would save the other men from having to cover more. Again, the four stood and looked at another task done, as if to savor completion. "'We'll walk home from here,' said Charles. He and Tyler waved as they left. "'I'd still like a ride, if that's okay,' said Nick. "'Sure. Let me try calling home first. Martin held his walkie-talkie close to his lips. "'Base nine. Base nine. This is Fowler. You there, base nine? "'Martin?' came Margaret's voice. "'Martin, is that you? Are you okay?' Martin rolled his eyes. He told her not to use their real names over the radio. "'Yes, I'm fine. Coming home in a few. I'll do the signal. Tell the others.' "'Right. I, I mean, uh, Roger, or, or whatever. Just hurry home.' "'There,' Martin turned to Nick. "'This way they won't shoot me as I drive up.' Martin wanted to laugh, but could only muster a smile. Nick waved as he stepped out of the truck. "'See you tomorrow at Jean's, I guess.' Martin waved back. As he slowly rolled down the dirt road, he hit two quick beeps on his horn. That was the signal that it was him approaching, if anyone remembered that. Everyone was waiting on the front steps as he pulled into the driveway. Anna had to hold Lucas back to keep him from running up to the truck. Martin had half anticipated that Margaret might run up to him for a welcome-home hug. At least, he wanted to picture that. He hoped that Susan wouldn't. He had no energy left to keep that problem contained. But when Martin stepped around from the front of his truck, no one moved from the top of the steps. No running for hugs. At first, he was a little taken aback at such a cool reception. Everyone simply stood and stared. Then he followed their stares. The whole front of his jacket and pants were drenched in blood. He imagined that he looked like a walking dead or something. Back at the roadblock, he smelled the metallic-tinged odor of blood, but had gotten used to it and didn't smell it any longer. "'Are you okay?' Margaret asked. "'Uh, yeah?' He looked down at his jacket. "'Uh, it's not mine.' The answer didn't mollify the group on the stairs. There was still a great deal of someone's blood. Martin walked toward the front door. He just wanted to get inside and sit down. The others quickly scrambled to get inside and up the stairs before him, all except Lucas, who had broken free of his mother's arms and stood his ground in the porch. He stared with wide eyes as Martin passed. His thighs ached as he climbed the stairs. His feet felt like they weighed a hundred pounds each. At the top of the stairs, Margaret pointed to his jacket and signaled for him to take it off. He set his carbine in the corner. Out of various pockets, he pulled out both high points and the Caltech and handed them to Dustin. Margaret took off the bloody jacket with a thumb and finger pinch. She waved Anna over to help. Anna crossed herself. They took the jacket to the wash bucket and poured water over it. We heard all kinds of shooting, Dustin said. From the radio, we heard our guys were going to storm a house full of bad guys. And that a man got shot in there, said Lucas. We didn't know if it was you or what, said Susan. 
I guess it was a guy from Wilson Hill. Gene said he's hurt pretty bad, but stable. You were all watching your corners, right? Not all gathered around a radio? No, said Margaret. She handed him a glass of water and a half a flatbread. They stayed at their posts. Dustin made sure of that. I gave Lucas the updates, and he went around to tell everyone. Things were happening so fast, said Lucas. I, I had to run. Martin chugged the water, then slumped into his chair. It felt good to have his boots off and feel the warmth of the wood stove. We heard the chief talking about a battle at a roadblock, said Margaret. Yeah, that was us, Martin said with his mouth full. Did you shoot the bad men? asked Lucas. Anna pulled him out of the room by his shoulder. Martin ignored the question. It reminded him of his earlier wondering of when each of the dead men had crossed the line from innocence to evil. What happened? asked Dustin. We stopped him. But will more of them come? asked Margaret. Don't know. Martin leaned back in his chair and stared at the dancing flames. It seemed like everyone was done asking him questions, or at least he stopped hearing them. In his mind, he mapped out things he needed to do. There was much more to work on, early warnings and defenses, but from the action of the day, it seemed like the town had already started to organize itself enough to deal with any further threats from the outside. The bigger challenge would be keeping things together on the inside. Even if outside hoodlums could be controlled, the food shortage was still a problem looming on their horizon. Would people turn on each other when the food gets scarce? That was probably what the federal authorities were hoping would happen with their embargoes, sanctions, and blockades, that New Hampshire could be starved into anarchy and forced to accept their aid and control, regardless of all the strings attached. Loss of hope would be worse, Martin mused. People without hope do desperate things, selfish things. Selfishness could crumble what semblance of civilization they still had. He realized that all he could control was himself. He vowed to guard himself against selfishness. If order was going to crumble, it wouldn't start with him. Martin fell asleep in his chair. And that's the end of Chapter 18 and the end of Siege Fall, Book 2 in the Siege of New Hampshire series. I do appreciate everybody staying with me all the way to the end of the book, and we'll see where we go from there. Thanks a bunch.